When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ooh, wait, wait. No, no, no. Uh, listen, no. I, listen. 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 <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I hate you for that. Let me fix it. Hello, and welcome back to Let Me Fix It, the podcast that says, hold up, we don't want to cause a riot, we just want to put you on the financial diet. Uh, I'm Delon Grant, I'm an actor, a singer, and a photographer, and a writer as well, that happens too. And I'm Francesca Ramsey, I'm an actress, a producer, a writer, and former graphic designer, and this week we have a very special guest. You know how much we love a multi-hyphenate up in this bitch, and today's guest she has quite a few hyphenates. She is a journalist, an author, a content creator, an excellent dinner party hostess, a lover of slutty little sundresses, and the co-founder and CEO of The Financial Diet. Please welcome Chelsea Fagan! Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our show. We're so excited. Like, truly, truly excited. I, I didn't really know the extent of all of your work um i knew of the financial diet but i'm now on this deep dive in the show i'm such a fan um but before we dig in um is this slutty sundress part of your official bio or did friend just like throw that in what's the backstory on that uh so i'm a, a big fan of what i call diane lane sundresses um oh. because that is like a very big subgenre of movie which is like she's just throwing on a slutty sundress and leaving a bad marriage and like going to get some <laughs> foreign d uh on a very luxurious trip it's like nancy myers movies plus sex uh yes, so that's yes. just a vibe i'm always going for in summer <laughs> oh well and i love it she has a whole series of slutty little sundress videos and like a soon as I saw them, I was like, this is very Fran coded because I love I love a wrap dress. Just you throw it on. It does all of the work for you. Listen, I love I love a sundress, too. And I'm very, very jealous of them because I still have to wear <laughs> two pieces in the summer. OK, um, so Chelsea, we have so much to talk about. But first up on top, I wanted to say you're kind of a perfect guest for our show because your whole career is evolved in, in interesting ways. You're kind of perpetually doing a let me fix it and pivoting at every turn. Um, I wanted to start with your journalism career, as Fran kind of alluded to. So you met Fran way back in 2013 when you interviewed her for the Thought Catalog. Is it just Thought Catalog, not the? Just Thought Catalog, and it's uh, still around. Is, it yeah, is. I know. <laughs> May she thrive. May she thrive. <laughs> so you interviewed her for Thought Catalog, where you were a writer and editor. And class, just so you know, the 
I keep saying the thought catalog was a staple of the mid aughts. (laughs) So Chelsea, he is really trying to make this aughts thing. Chelsea, Chelsea, what do you call the two the the two thousands? What would you would you refer to them as just the two thousands or the aughts? Well, I I would actually say it was technically a bigger thing in the. I think it started in twenty ten, so I think it would have technically been in the mid aughts. Teens, the mid teens, so the twenty teens. Uh, that sounds terrible, but I think that's actually what it would be. <laughs> twenty teens does sound terrible. Twenty teens sounds like something illegal, right? right. Like, oh God, oh God, terrible. <laughs> uh, so back in the twenty teens, thought catalog was a staple with tons of listicles and personal essays with clicky, sometimes salacious headlines. Talk to us a little bit about working at thought catalog and how, if at all, it shaped your career as a writer. Well, first of all, uh, Fran, thank you for so graciously referring to it as journalism um, <laughs> in your prompting because I would not describe it that way. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I started my writing career um, by submitting articles to Thought Catalog. The very first one I ever published there went viral. This was back in 2011. And for the first. Do you remember what it was? I do. It was called Now Accepting Boyfriend Applications. It oh. was uh, like a list of criteria. I will still to this day receive disgruntled emails every now and again from men because the first one was that the man can't be short, which I regret writing now uh, at the ripe old age of 35. But And it's funny, too. It was published the day I met my husband, um, which is a very auspicious day. And how tall is your husband? He's 6'4", so he's not a short man. (laughs) He read. He was reading Thought Catalog, okay? Closed mouths do not get fed. Chelsea (laughs) said... You must read the stipulations, and if you do not, like, if it doesn't apply, let it fly. Uh, 100%. So I sort of manifested him. Um, But I actually wrote and submitted articles for the first maybe six to nine months of writing there for free. I was not being paid. Um, And then I negotiated my way up to $25 an article. And in that time, I mean, I had many articles go viral. So, you know, being on the other side of running a media business for, for a long time now, I can only imagine the finances of that. But um, but then I started, I became a staffer there in 2012. Um, and my job for most of my career there was, you know, I had a goal, I think it was 25 million views a month. Um, now, is that a personal goal? Or was that your actual page view goal from the site? Um, so that was the page view goal from the site, uh, which was really high. Um, yeah. uh, so I was often writing like four articles a day. Um you know, that I was just trying to get to go viral and it would be, you know, take, it was Mad Libs. It was like what your ex says about why type of thing. Um, So yeah, I mean, it was in many ways, it was, it was not a good job for a lot of reasons, but on the flip side, I think it was very, I mean, A, almost anything you could do professionally in in media after would have probably been a step up financially and otherwise, but also um, because I was only making like $36,000 a year, but also um, I think it really gave me a very, very um, un, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, 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 a very not naive view into the actual reality of making a sustainable media business. And although I don't mm. emulate a lot of things about it, um, learning about it in that way definitely prepared me to start my own eventually. Well, listen, I, one of the things I love about you is how self-reflective you are and how yes. aware you are. And, and yes, 
maybe some of the headlines at Thought Catalog were a little salacious and and clickbaity. And I worked at Upworthy for a few years, so I know all about that clickbait cringe. Um, something about odd numbers and headlines. Yes. I don't know why that tends to do well. I pulled some uh, Chelsea headlines: nine Halloween candle candies and what they would be like as boyfriends. <laughs> oh, Seven people on social media who are more annoying than new moms. Um, I, I don't know what it is. The odd numbers, they get the girls going. Um, so aside from graduating from the dreaded listicle, um, you've really been candid about how your perspective has changed on certain subjects that you've written about in the past. Most notably, you made a TikTok addressing a piece that you wrote 12 years ago about street harassment. <laughs> About 12 years ago, I wrote an article for a website that I worked for at the time about how women who dressed in revealing ways should not be surprised when they then get harassed or assaulted. I won't link to it because I don't want to give any more clicks to it, but you can find it if you look hard enough. And I could give a lot of context for the article. I was 22. I was working under enormous pressure to generate clicks, which often came through controversy and was dead broke so I couldn't lose the job. I was also coming off of a horrendous pick-me-slash-libertarian phase and basically knew very little about the real world. And a lot of my identity and validation came from being a bit of a contrarian. But there's no excuse. The article was horrendous. And at the time, I got what we would now call today canceled. Basically, the whole internet was after me for a while, and rightfully so. It took years for my Google results to return to somewhat normal. About a year after writing that article, I wrote a follow-up article on the same website talking about the things I had learned and apologizing for the harm that I had caused. But 12 years on, it is everyone's individual choice whether or not they want to forgive me for that. I am personally comfortable with the work that I have done and the changes that I've made in my own life since then, but you don't have to feel the same way. And that video's racked up nearly half a million views. Can you talk to us about what inspired you to make that video? Well, it's 13 years ago now, we, and we inch ever closer to two decades worth of distance <laughs> from it. But um, again, you've put it nicely. So in 2011, I wrote an article, um, basically it was when the slut walks were happening and it was, you know, I quoted like stand male stand-up comedians and you know, it was very, uh, essentially the thesis was like, if you wear revealing clothes, don't be surprised if you get harassed or assaulted, which is, you know, a horrendous point of view to take for sure, um, even for a 22-year-old. Um, but it was also, you know, very reflective of not just, I mean, the reason the slut walk came to be in the first place was because that was a pretty dominant school of thought, but also... Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I think, and of course it can't be understated that there was a, a, a really substantial pressure on the website to generate clicks often through controversy and starting right. discourse. Um, but it was, it was terrible. And I think, you know, part of the reason that I made the video now is because I do still get comments about it. And I think, you know, for me, I really always want to push back against this, um, you know, I think cancel culture is a, a not a really accurate term for it. Um, but I do think there is a subset, there there can be a faction of people who, um, you know, want to hold people to account on the internet for things they might have said or done, but they don't actually really want to see them change or evolve yeah. or learn. Mm. And for me, I think, you know, whether or not you choose to follow me or support my work 13 years later is completely your choice. And I always say that, you know, if you still feel angry at me now for that, that's your right. I mean, I did write an apology a year after that happened. And of course, 13 years later, don't identify with it at all. But I think 
when I get comments that are spiteful, that are, oh, just so you know, this is what happened, I always want to, if possible, use myself as an example of like, I'm not going to shy away from it. I really did think those things. But I also, yeah. like most of us, grew up in a, an extremely misogynist culture. Um, I internalized a lot of horrible views about women, about gender relations, about all aspects of this part of our lives. And that article, combined with a few other factors, was an accurate representation of that view. And I am someone now who not only is a very different person, lives a very different life, but feels totally differently about it. But I also am not going to live in shame of it. Mm. Same way I wouldn't live in shame about something I did to a boyfriend 12, 13 years ago. You know, I did some shitty things in all areas of my life and I don't walk around feeling not only shame about it, but I also don't walk around identifying with it. And I think for me, I really think there needs to be more examples on the internet of people. I mean, because I was really, I mean, we didn't call it that, but I was canceled, you know? Like I was, yeah. her, I was, people were really angry at me very loudly and publicly so and rightfully so. Um, and my response to that was not to double down or to become more that person. And I think if we don't leave the door open for people to learn and to become different people, um, not only is that likely to result in, you know, more people moving away from progressive values, but it's also, it eventually comes for us all because I don't think there's one person in the world who's never said or done anything they don't oh, regret. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I and to that point, I think, especially speaking as somebody who, you know, has had a long career where I've talked about people's mistakes and I've made mistakes too, I think people delight in finding the fuck up if you are somebody who is quote unquote progressive or liberal, they're like, oh yeah, well, you've said X, Y, and Z. Like right. people love receipts for that reason, um, which is why I really appreciated that you were like, I'm going to address it head on. Yeah, I said it. I don't think that way anymore. And I think that that's what's so refreshing about that approach is most people don't do that. Well, and it, and the thing I love about it too, Chelsea, is that you really do uh, – in the vulnerability that you offer, it allows us all to be just a little bit more human. And people cannot fault you when you're vulnerable and when you're honest, right? We, we just did an apologies episode where we talk about apologies a lot and we, we dissect people's apologies and whether they worked and why they didn't. And I think this is just such a great example and a master class of what an apology is. You said, yeah, I did it and I've grown now what are we going to do, <laughs> right? And yeah. I think that's that's all you can do in those instances, and you really do it well. You name the thing, you add a context around it, which is just so huge. Um, but more importantly, you also acknowledge that what you're offering might not be enough for other people, and they have to decide for themselves whether you've grown or not. Um, how did you come to that realization, and how the heck do we help other people who grew up publicly <laughs> kind of find that space to, to be that vulnerable and, and offer the same kind of um, example? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people in the public eye, I mean, this is a different but perhaps more recent example in my own life. You know, a a month or two ago, some person that I went out with once like 11 years ago made a video on TikTok about their experience with me that Mm -hmm. was, they, I I, I guess I acted in a very cringe way. um, And it was, you know, the video, um, you know, it called me ugly it wasn't very nice but (gasps) um 
Okay, but, they, they talk about you being cringe, but then they're okay, also going to call okay, you ugly. Right, right. Like, have you seen? Have you seen the hair? Have you seen okay. the glasses? Have you okay. seen like, you, like Jessie's serving looks when she's not in a slutty s- sundress? She's in a cowl <laughs> neck sweater with a thread okay. count you can only dream of. What are you talking about? Uh, that's very, very sweet and and very flattering. Um, but it was a really interesting thing because you know I and the, you know the video was I was blocked from all platforms before it was posted so I couldn't see it myself I couldn't respond to it or anything Um, and the story was told in a way that made it seem as if it were very recent um, uh, but it was obviously more than a decade ago and I think you know for me in seeing that and and you know it it blew up so basically everyone I know in my life has seen it Uh, a lot of people have brought it up to me Um, on the one hand having been used to you know dealing with moments from my past that don't reflect well on me or having to acknowledge that part of my life, um, I did feel somewhat prepared and grounded. But on the other hand, like I never, this is the first time I've ever spoken about it. I've never, I, I didn't like, you know, make a response or go tit for tat because I mean, ultimately I think, you know, although for a week, my comments were just flooded with people being like, oh, she got your ass, whatever. Um, oh, you know, God. I never responded to it because I think I mean, A, I think we we have to have a higher bar for what we respond to. Like, I'm not going to go tit for tat about like, oh, yeah, we didn't vibe once 11 years ago and, you know, <laughs> never saw each other again. Right. But also, you know, that person's experience is their experience, but you've sat on this for 11 years. There was a time where they could have reached out to you to say, hey, I don't feel good about how this was handled, but obviously they're taking it to TikTok and and blocked you so that they can get some sort of response, whether it be from the audience and not necessarily you. I think you're correct in to say it's not worth putting your energy into it because they got what they wanted out of it. If they wanted a reconciliation with you, they would have talked to you. (laughs) A hundred percent. And I also think, well, you know, and also it it was an unflattering story about me and that I sounded insecure and cringy, but it wasn't like I did something bad or malicious in the story. So I think that's Mm. also, you know, an important part of the litmus test. But I say that to say, in the moment, for like a week, I felt very distressed, you know, because, you know, it's embarrassing, first of all, and I think that's part of the goal, but also, um, you know, and this is why I think so many people have really bad reactions to things like this, is because there is, I think, a very natural human desire to defend yourself, to advocate for yourself, to not betray yourself in a lot of ways, Mm. and I think for a lot of people, admitting that they were wrong, that they messed up, that they did something bad or embarrassing or or inconsiderate feels like in some ways a betrayal of their former selves. Mm, and I think yeah. about, you know, there was a woman who went viral on TikTok this week for an experience she had in a lesbian bar in New York. Um, yes. And, her, I mean, they have been eating her ass alive on that platform. Delon, the, the, cliff, the cliff notes is a straight girl went to a lesbian bar and had a straight man with her. I know. And it, and and it's one of those things where like it starts off like a bad joke. A straight woman in a in a lesbian right, bar with right. a straight guy and had a encounter with a lesbian in the bar who essentially said to her straight male friend like what are you doing here? Like what who who are you with, you know? And this straight woman made this video saying like, "Oh, so we're not allowed to go to lesbian bars." And to Chelsea's point, it's become the trending topic of the timeline. Everyone is is having valid critiques of her, but just saying the same thing over and over and over again. Like everybody's mm. just weighing in to say, you're not supposed to be there. And she knows she's not supposed to be there. So part of me is kind of like, did she make this video? Cause she has a genuine misunderstanding of what the, the critique is and, or does she know that it has all of the buzzwords 
that are going to make it go viral, which is exactly what happened. Someone did make a response, essentially telling a different version of the story she told um, as the woman she was talking about, which made her look maybe not so truthful in the way that she represented it. But it's interesting. I've been watching her profile since she posted that. And, you know, it's either she hasn't addressed it or has kind of doubled down. And I think from my perspective watching it, like, I feel strongly that if I were in her position, that I would totally mea culpa, make a video being like, that was cringe as fuck. I'm so sorry I did that. I really did not understand the, you know, whatever. And I think for the most part, although the internet can be swift in its, you know, recrimination, I think it can also be um, people delight in some capacity to see someone have that level of self-awareness and, you know, the ability to admit to a mistake and that humility. But I do think that in the moment, I can totally understand from her perspective. I also picture her friends around her. I also picture the conversations that she's having privately. And I understand how in the moment with your defensiveness and your cortisol spiked through the roof, it can feel damn near impossible to do anything that makes it look like you are, again, betraying your former self or walking because you feel like you're your only ally. So to then throw yourself under the bus in a way, I think, feel it goes against people's human nature, I think. What's interesting about that whole story to me is that she went to this bar, had an experience, and then went to the internet and talked about it. So she kind of put herself on front street and then got backlash because of it. You know, so I think she did. She, put herself in the situation but i do really appreciate what you said about like having a perspective about what she would have done what she did wrong right i mean as a very gay yeah. person um that goes to gay bars i'm like yeah those aren't really spaces like we don't want to see your bridal party come in to a gay bar for the drag show but at the same time like it's it's a public space where everyone's allowed to so like what's the discourse we can have around that very public space that some people hold sacred right yeah and i think this this is all kind of related to to my next question the last one on this topic you know chelsea you mentioned being 22 when you were when you were working at thought catalog and when you you wrote that article and this idea that no one is born with good politics um you know Full disclosure, I had terrible opinions in my 20s that thankfully never ended up online. Um, (laughs) But your point reminded me of a tweet that I saw last year about uh, Issa Rae expressing regret over writing a memoir in her 20s. And uh, this journalist was saying that when he was talking to her, she said that if she could go back, she would not share all of those things. And he felt similarly about all these deeply personal essays that young writers write. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the responsibilities that a place like a thought catalog or BuzzFeed, or I think of like Exo Jane, which like some, some of the stories that I would see on that website, like I left a tampon in for three months and I'm like, girl, why are you writing an article about this? But also like, why is a news or, you know, a platform capitalizing on this and essentially throwing them to the wolves? And I'm just curious if you have thoughts about, like, should media companies be more mindful? Like, should there be an age limit? Should 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 we be, like, asking some core questions before we say, yes, go write that personal essay that will go viral, but could potentially screw up your entire life? I think it's a nuanced issue that, you know, it's it's funny. I always think that like although I post some, I posted some terrible stuff on Thought Catalog, no doubt. Um, I was lucky that I met my now husband basically the day I started writing publicly, and have been with him since. And he is a one hundred percent offline person. So you know that whole part of my personal life. Like if I was going through breakups while writing at Thought Catalog, like I can only imagine the shit I would have posted. You know, with yeah. a, with access to a public platform. So like. 
by, you know, pure chance, really. And I have, you know, many friends uh, who have shared stuff about their relationships that they regret um, in, you know, really heightened emotional moments. So I had a whole podcast with my ex-husband and I was like, delete. Wait a minute. Wait. <laughs> I was like, um, hey, Brick, can you delete all of these videos? <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. No, I'm, I'll say it. And She'll say it. And Gladly. And, Listen, and I, and I and, sorry, to, sorry to cut you off. I don't yeah. regret anything that I said on that podcast, but it's the feeling of, oh, oh my God, that is another time in my life. Yes. And I don't want to think about that time in my life. And I'm a different person now. And I just want to be this person and not that person. A hundred percent. But I also think that what those things are, are different for everyone. And yes. it is really impossible to know from the outside what someone will regret sharing or what will later change for them. I mean, for me, I've obviously gone whole hog on financial transparency, basically every aspect of my finances is either out there or like I've had, you know, when when news outlets have written things, like they have audited our finances as a business. Like I do have that level, like I can't walk that back. Um, but there may be other things that I will eventually regret having shared so candidly and I don't even necessarily know what they are right now. So I think there's that mm. aspect of it. Also, similarly, you know, we interview, I've interviewed probably over a hundred people easily by now for my show. And we will generally give people, if you want to cut something, if you want to, you know, not say something, we always give people that offer. But, you know, we have a comment section on YouTube that is, you know, pretty discerning, I would say. And, mm. you know, they loved, for example, they loved your interview. They, we still hear about it all the time. The comments are glowing. We've had other guests where the comments are very negative about the yeah. person. And mm. we've had, on occasion, people write to us very angrily about having posted it. And in some cases, we were already giving them a very sympathetic edit. But, you know, I think there are certain things, like if a person is not very, if, if they're tone deaf about their financial privilege, if they're not honest about certain things, if they're speaking in a way that's, like, very inconsiderate, like, about other socioeconomic groups, like, things like that will always kind of set the audience off or speaking from a place of expertise they don't have, whatever it may be. And... You know, in some cases we can delete, in other cases because of ad agreements, we can't necessarily take the post down, at least not right away. And I think in those moments, like, if if you had asked me this prior to having gone through that as a media business person, as an owner, I would probably have said, like, yes, we need to hold a lot more accountability. But on the flip side, I think it's not always a totally clear thing on either end what are yeah. going to be the things you really regret. And some people, to your yeah. point about the tampon thing, like, I remember stories like that all the time. And sometimes like the, those stories, those very harrowing personal stories or superficially embarrassing personal stories can be things that people are most proud of sharing because they really helped people or they helped mm. themselves or they held them accountable in some way. So it's a, there's no one set of rules that I think works for each instance. Yeah. I think one of the hardest things too is like when we live in an age where your person is your content, right? When your experience, your story is your content. To your point, Chelsea, it's hard to gauge that, but you also want to share it, right? We're not only sharing family stories and things on Instagram, but both you and Fran have are really transparent about your experience in life. And the timeline is just the timeline, right? And I, I feel yeah. Fred uh, talked about this so many times about like, why don't you go back through your Twitter timeline and delete some of that stuff? Why are they finding your racist Ugh. tweets still? But I mean, yeah. like, at the same point, like we should know that stuff, but like, you know, it's just, 
you were a different person at that point. This brings us to kind of the the big kahuna, the financial diet, as I said at the top. <laughs> uh, so in 2014, you started the financial diet as a personal blog about your finances. But in the years since, you've grown it to like this full-blown media company with over a million followers on YouTube, two books, which we'll talk about in a second. You have a thriving Patreon. And I think, I believe, uh, Too Good to Be True is the podcast for the financial diet. Um, you have a whole series of pers- in-person workshops and events dedicated to giving young women space to talk about their finances. So talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to create the financial diet and how you went from a personal blog to a whole company with a Manhattan office and eight employees, because I know that wasn't easy. No. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I started it initially to hold myself accountable financially because I had a really, really unhealthy relationship with money um, at the time. Uh, it was, it'll be 10 years ago this year. Um, and I started it as a personal blog. It, you know, my co-founder and partner, I have uh, two other partners now, but the first partner, my co-founder who was working at an ad agency reached out to me on day three. She wanted to help me design it, use it for her portfolio. Then John and Hank Green of, you know, the internet came out uh, <laughs> very shortly thereafter. They gave us a small grant and then they came back to us a little under a year later asking if, they, if we wanted to become one of their YouTube channels. So although in some ways, like we've never had investors, we've never, you know, um, had any kind of outside, outside of that one grant we received, we've never had any kind of um, institutional help in that regard. We've always been independently owned and operated and funded. We've also had a lot of advantages. I mean, my uh, both my co-founder and I, we were able to go without earning a salary for almost two years because our partners were able to, we were able to stay on their insurance. I mean, I still worked freelance and stuff, but I didn't have my full-time income. Um, but both of our partners worked. Um, you know, my co-founder lived with her parents for a while. I, you know, um, took on other odd jobs and things like that. And so, um, we did have a lot of advantages that allowed us to start the company. So although it was difficult, it was definitely easier and more privileged than many. Sorry to like throw cookies on you, but you are our guest. So I have to just cut in and say like, this is why I fucks with you, Chelsea. Yo. This is why I like you. Yo, this is I was, why I like you. I'm feeling, you're like, I'm feeling the same thing. Though. You know what I mean? You're like, oh. thank you. But also, and we talk about this a lot because we talk a lot about brands and like their their journeys mostly failed brands and the the fact of the matter that many businesses start from people that already had money or already had successful businesses or you know were able to get uh investments from their family members uh or whatnot and so it's the prevailing theme of a lot of stories and people don't talk about it yeah. and it is it is a privilege to say I have a partner who has a job and I can stay on their insurance and like just acknowledging that is really honest, but also gives other people, it like lifts the weight off of other people's shoulders that are going, why didn't I start a company 10 years ago? Well, you're in a different situation and that's okay. A thousand percent. I also, to be fair, I mean, I do operate in a very high level of financial transparency in part for not selfish reasons, but self-preservationist reasons, because, you know, as a business owner of 10 years, you know, we ultimately like we've had really great, great luck. We've had always a really great team, great relationships with the people we've worked with, we've collaborated with. We've gotten really lucky in a lot of ways with how we've operated. But I also know that not only as a business owner, but as someone who puts myself out there value wise in terms of what I pay myself, in terms of our company's values, in terms of my political values, like 
I need to be very accountable to like, I could publish my company's entire financial history on the internet and like that would line up with what I've said. And I feel Mm, like that provides me a, a level of mental relief because to the earlier point about like things that I've done in my past, I mean, I'm sure I've met people that didn't like me that I've said or done cringe or, or embarrassing or bad things in my life for sure. And no one's perfect, but to know that, that no one can say anything about me financially, that is a really important thing because my business is in finance. And because that's so much of what I talk about, it's just really important to be transparent because I would not be comfortable with a, I mean, obviously I wouldn't be comfortable with lying or misrepresenting myself, but also B, if I'm not upfront about all of the aspects of my finances, it leaves the door open for someone else to say, well, what about this? What about this? Yeah. Um, and it maybe is like a sort of paranoid thing, but I think you know very well, yeah, obviously. I was, like, I was about to say, I have that same feeling. <laughs> and people will, and like, I'm very, I mean, I have to be self-aware of the fact that like, I am a very privileged, you know, white American, English-speaking, upper-middle-class woman who lives in Manhattan with her husband and dog. Like, I am a very, very privileged person who, if I don't come up front about all of those privileges, like, someone else will and they'll be right to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So I do want to always acknowledge that being really transparent about my finances does benefit me in that way because it does take that card off the table, which I especially am conscientious about as a business owner because I don't want someone to denigrate my business as a result of denigrating me. Well, I really appreciate the humility around you around you being transparent. You're very <laughs> humble about being transparent. And I'm like, and but for us, I think what we're repeatedly saying, what I'm repeatedly feeling in this interview is like, transparency is that novel. Why it's is so it rare? No one does it. You know what I mean? And and so like, I'm sure you're, it's your everyday life, but like, it's so cool to witness it because again, like I said at the top, when we we're talking about another topic, like you people, when you were talking about your apology, people can't fault you for that. Oh, they do. <laughs> oh, trust me. There are She's like, so I have the receipts to show it. My comments. Still so many. Well, yeah. I mean, but again, to your earlier point, they're allowed to be angry. Yes. And I'm curious if this is something that, again, you've come to over time. But I know when I was in my 20s and and even, you know, into my 30s, it was hard to see people say mean things about me on the internet. And it was hard to know that people didn't like me. And I I struggle sometimes, you know, there, there are certain people who are universally liked and unfortunately the tides turn on them at some point, but I still feel like a little bit of jealousy when I'm like, God, everybody likes this bitch. I don't see one nasty person in these comments <laughs> and I'm not going to be the person, but I'm like, wow, what, what must that feel like? I've, I've never had a moment like that on the internet. <laughs> I, to- I totally get you. One of my, uh, one of my friends has a pretty large internet following and is like universally beloved in a way that I'll never know or relate to. And I'm just like, <laughs> What does it feel like to be God's favorite? Um, But I also think in some ways, you know, that experience I had recently on social media with someone drudging up this rather odd story about me was the first time something like that had really ever happened in some ways. Usually people, if they've called me out, it's been for like some garbage thing I wrote, which I'm like, saw that coming. But (laughs) this one, it's like, really, of all things. Um, So, you know, I I kind of, I was talking to a friend of mine about it, uh, you know, asking for advice somewhat. And she was like, babe, I hate to break this to you, but like literally everyone with over a million TikTok followers has their own dedicated hate subreddit. So like, yes, buckle up, girl. <laughs> like if the more you're, the more profile you get. And I think that's also part of the reason why 
some opportunities have come to TFD um, or to myself uh, more in the financial space, but that would meet a substantially greater platform. And I think for me, there's always been a real reluctance to making any kind of big jump because I think there is a point at which visibility has extremely diminishing returns. Mm. You know, <laughs> say you that can be louder visible. for the kids in the back. <laughs> Truly, but like, I think there's a really good level of visible to be to benefit, for example, creative projects, you know, personal, your own finances, all of that. But once you tip past a certain point, it's all downhill, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, the, the other thing I would hear both of you saying that, that I want to pull on is like, I, there's so much bad stuff that is said about people on the internet, but knowing more friends work, but in becoming a fan of yours now, Chelsea, there's so much good said about the two of you. And like, you have both have such ad value that it's, um, that it's, I think, very human to lob on to the thing that said and like to have oh, it yeah. be personal, right? Um, one of the things that I, I think that you offer in the financial diet in your YouTube co- content in particular is like a social psychology about about the systems and the way the financial systems affect us it's not just about like balancing your budget or or your taxes it's like you're talking about how money affects our our person and our lives which i really respect and appreciate um one of the videos of yours that i really loved was how the wealthy gaslight america first of all you also have whoever's doing the headlines for your videos brilliant i think it's chelsea I did really? that one. I don't do uh, all of them, but I did do that one. <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, Thank you. Uh, but how the wealthy gaslight America, you talk about wealth envy. And I never, I don't know why that feels like novel to me, like I'd never heard it before. Um, but talk to us a little bit about wealth envy. And do you think it's the fault of media? You you label a lot of like different TV shows and news stories in the video talking about wealth envy. And I don't know if it's specifically the media or if it's just capitalism in general, but um, do you have a fix for it as well? So as far as wealth envy, I think probably the biggest single issue today has to be social media beyond mm. even the... Because I think seeing wealthy people in movies and television is nothing new. And I think that that's always been the case. But to be constantly like in friction with so many lifestyles that are A, so different from yours, but often so manipulatively represented or so poorly disclosed mm. um, is really bad for mental health. I mean, it's really, really bad for even just like spatial awareness. Um, and I always sort of think to myself, like, you know, there there's this like 22 year old, like very gorgeous Mormon lifestyle <laughs> model girl. They're always Mormon. <laughs> She's like on my feet all the time. She's a bunch of kids. She's like also married to yes. a model. Like I, what is her name? I can't remember. She's like making I think her name recipes. is Sophia. Her name is Sophia, I think. She's that beautiful big kitchen, or I mean, there's there's dozens that's of them. So who, that's the other Mormon. That's another Mormon. That's another Mormon. <laughs> I do guess her chil- a lot of them. Do her children dress exclusively in beige? Because that will no. help me narrow down. Okay, well then it's not the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> no, no. Uh, although there's been a lot of really interesting articles about why Mormons are so prevalent in lifestyle blogging, and there's a really interesting rabbit hole to go down on that. And a lot of it is I actually back. I, I think I read industry. that it was like the, it's like a recruiting tool that they're they're doing it to try and get membership 100% yeah yes so a lot of them interestingly are either very directly funded or sort of implicitly supported by the LDS church and often like when you see actual LDS literature and um you know talking points in the video or in the content that can often be a sign but 
suffice to say, there's also a lot of reasons why the religion, the 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 doctrine of Mormonism dovetails really nicely with blogging and creating and things like that. There's interesting articles to go to. But there's so much to be said about this person who's like obviously fabulously wealthy and extremely young and like living this like she's always like in basically in ball gowns making chocolate chip cookies and like living in this <laughs> and making bread state. from scratch <laughs> <laughs> yeah. making like literally everything from scratch things I didn't even know you could make from scratch but suffice <laughs> to say like I was like getting deep into the lore for a minute of like watching people's videos like in like in the discourse about her and then I felt this feeling of like in what other universe would I be sitting here at my age of 35 years old, living in New York City, no children, you know, having this life that I live, watching a 22-year-old mom of three or whatever in a palace in Utah making scones and, like, watching people talk about her and, like, getting so yeah. deep into the literature. And it's like, that would never, ever, ever happen. But in some ways, there's such a—and I think there can be really beautiful aspects of the flattening of social media in terms of, like— you know, getting to follow people who are older than you, who live different lives than you do, who have different things to say, who have different perspectives, that can be beautiful, but it can also be very damaging because in this particular space, I exist in the same plane of existence as this woman, but obviously on no psychological or social level would we ever normally share a space, and I should not be that informed about her life. So mm, I really yes. think that well wealth and is in large part today, driven by that proximity and also, again, that lack of disclosure. I think people really don't understand the extent to which anyone who has, almost as a rule, anyone on social media who lives a very glamorous lifestyle got that lifestyle from something other than social media. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. They were, most of them were rich to begin with. A hundred, a hundred percent. And I don't think people really take that into account enough. And so I think the fix for me on a very individual level, it doesn't scale necessarily because social media is always working against this algorithmically, but is to try to only pare down your exposure to either things that have actual meaning for you, like people you know, subjects you're interested in, or things that feel additive uh, to your perspective in a way that's beneficial. And for me, that can be a hard thing to sense, but a good, good litmus test is how do I feel after I scroll away from mm -hmm. that content? You know? Yeah. I love that. Oh, I, I, that is so real. And I do feel like TikTok has become a place for really rich people to flex what they have. And it does feel different because, you know, I think I've heard people using like quiet luxury, so to speak, where you knew certain people were rich, but like, I didn't get to see your closet. So I didn't mm. know how rich you were. Like, I didn't know what your garage looked like and how many cars you had, for example. Um, and now that's like a whole genre, like closet tours and, you know, get ready to buy a new car with me. Like, it just stuff that, again, I'd never been exposed to. And you realize oh, damn, like, rich people are living on a totally different planet than the rest of us. Well, and this is what gives, like, the the late-stage capitalism theory, like, so much fodder, right? Like, the idea that we're, we're criticizing the rich and criticizing capitalism and the hypocrisy of capitalism. Because we're sitting there watching it, and it's never, like, to your to the 2D part of it, it's never can be realized. I'm never going to be that rich. I mean... If anybody's listening, I would love to be. You know what I mean? <laughs> if anybody's listening. But like, it just feels like so elusive, yet we're striving for it, right? We're on the hamster wheel, as it were. I totally agree. And also, I think there's something to be said for, I mean, talking about the 
the quote unquote quiet luxury. I mean, first of all, let's be very clear. Anyone who's like discreet wealthy is not on social media. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Like they're not. Mm-hmm. So we're already. The <laughs> fact that there are tutorials on how to look quiet, to appear quiet luxury. It's Doing like, the most. no. <laughs> the most. Uh, the, the absolute most. But also I think there's a very fine line between, and this is something I, I did an interview recently with a, a creator that I really like who said that, it's hard to tell the difference between being inspired by something and being envious of something that can feel mm. very similar. And also social media really inculcates this, this feeling that because you enjoy or appreciate something, you must acquire it, that mm. it must be something that you can purchase. Or, I mean, listen, basically every app now is turning into a shopping app in terms of yeah. you see something, you can have it, you can own it. And I think especially, you know, one thing that I did for my own social media sort of purging is I really am, I love interior uh, decor stuff, but I try to be very conscientious and mindful of, I follow, you know, actual interior designers who are showing their projects that they work on, who are professionals paid for it, or magazines like an Architectural Digest. But for a lot of the individual people, creators, influencers, who they're essentially always showing their own home. There's a very inherently deceptive element of it, which is they're presenting this as this is my life, but it really is their job. And so much of what you're looking at was given to them for free. They were paid and to endorse it. And they don't disclose. And they don't and they, disclose it. They don't disclose. And they tell you to go to that link in their bio. Mm-hmm. And they don't even disclose that they're getting commissions. I mean, 100%. Wow. And there's a woman I have connected with on social media who I really like. She's a very nice person, but I almost like, I want to say, like, girl, I have to mute you for my own sanity. Um, And I don't want you to take it personally that I never like or watch any of your stuff. But you live in, you know, this incredibly glamorous space that's, like, constantly being renovated to within an inch of its life. And I know a lot of that stuff is comped. And it's not my business to get on you about it. But, like, I just can't be seeing that. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely have to do that. And I think, again... The, the the prevailing theme here is the transparency outwardly, but then transparency with your internal self to say, how is this making me feel? And I have to do something about it. And I think a lot of people are not willing to do that. And, and you know, I quit Twitter last year for that reason, because I was like, this is making me feel bad. And Same. I have to be honest with myself. Like, I'm feeling bad every day. I'm getting behind on paid things. Someone is paying me to do something, and I am wasting my time on this app. And I think more people need to have that level of transparency, again, outwardly, but inwardly as well. Um, on that same topic, a few months ago, you had a viral TikTok where you shared that despite being a co-founder of The Financial Diet, you are not the highest paid person in the company. Um, you ranked yourself fifth uh, on the list of salaries. You did also say that you feel obnoxious talking about it, but I'm going to give you cookies here and say we've had such a large trend of CEOs showing how out of touch they are, whether it be Elon Musk or Bob Iger during the writer's strike. Your transparency is is really impressive. Why are you not the number one spot at your company? Because I think most people, when they like say, I'm starting a company, you know, I'm trying to be rich. I want to be, you know, raking in the dollars. And who is at the number one spot if it's not you? Uh, sales team. Uh-huh. 
I mean, but that's industry standard. Without even thinking about it, you knew. I mean, but that just tells you why you're the boss and I'm not. <laughs> I, I don't know that I would know. <laughs> well, they're responsible for generating the vast majority of the revenue. So, it, yeah. I mean, and that's also industry standard. Like if you point to any media company outside of executives, generally speaking, the sales team are going to be making far and away more money than almost anyone else. Because again, they, they produce almost all of the, re- not all, but like a lot of the revenue. Because most of our business is still ad sales. So someone's got to sell those ads. And it's certainly not a job I would want to do. So <laughs> God love them. Uh, <laughs> heard, heard. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I think what's very important to stress here is that not only do I have a lot of income outside of TFD. I had a romance novel I published last year um, that, you know, has been a great source of income for me. I have another book project that I sold recently. Um I have, you know, other, I do other consulting occasionally. We only have a 40 work week at my company. So I do have a lot of extra time. I don't want kids. So I have a lot of time. Um, But also I live in a dual income, no kid household. My husband works in tech. He earns a very good living. We have, my mortgage is $2,400 a month. I have a 2.85%, 2.875% interest rate. We have no car. We have no big hobbies. Like we we don't like at this point, earning more money from TFD specifically would do nothing to improve my life and would put way more pressure on the company because every additional dollar that someone earns inherently is a dollar you have to make. So Mm. for me, it it is very easy. Like I've been making the same amount. I actually didn't take a salary for several months last year because we were dealing with some financial difficulties, but now I'm back to being paid. And I've made $90,000 a year uh, for the past like five years, give or take a few. I'll occasionally do like bonus-based projects on certain things. But for the most part, it's remained the same. Um, And I've grown my income outside of it Um, but even then I've also capped that out in a lot of ways and I don't always earn income outside of it, but it's very clearly like one thing that is so important to focus on financially is what is enough, you know, because Mm. if you don't have a very, very strong sense of enough, put that, I'm sorry, put that on a magnet. Look, my eyebrows went straight up to my hairline. Okay. Come on. That like, (laughs) I mean, that is very, it's just, it's so simple. But it's so real. Yeah. What is enough? I think about that with billionaires. I'm like, you can't even enjoy all of the money you have in your bank account. When no. will you have enough? And you're so worried about losing it that like you're stressed. <laughs> a thousand, a thousand percent. And I think for me, that point was reached some time ago. I genuinely feel that there's nothing in my life that I want that I can't have or that I can't do. Now, granted, I mean, if I had aspirations to own five houses and have a private jet and all this other wasteful shit, like sure, I couldn't afford to do that. But It is also one thing that is really important financially beyond the concept of having enough so that you're not constantly striving for something financially that's often out of your control is if you don't have a very strong sense of enough and a very rooted sense of what actually has value for you and makes you happy, you will almost without fail become a victim of lifestyle inflation. And we Uh. read all the time about couples in New York City they earn a half million dollars a year. They're living paycheck to paycheck because they got the private school. They got the country home. They got the two-car mm-hmm. garage. They got, I mean, it it never ends. And especially because most people tend to socialize with their wealth group. And as they go up the ladder, that becomes more and more concentrated. You're trying to keep up with the Joneses. hundred okay. percent. The Joneses keep coming up on this podcast. <laughs> sure I ain't seen them motherfuckers, but we, everyone's <laughs> trying to keep up. <laughs> Well, to that point, like if you don't keep that really grounded sense of enough, it will just continue to inflate. And I obviously feel worse for people who don't have enough financially, let me be clear. But I also feel bad for, and I've made TikToks about this and and sometimes deleted them because people will nitpick about this, but I really feel a sense of not empathy maybe, but pity for people who have a lot and spend a lot. 
because not only are they often locked into jobs and, and work situations that they don't want to be, but more importantly, they have robbed themselves of the one most important thing that money is supposed to give you, which is freedom. Freedom. Um, mm. And so to see people all the time, like, you know, in the social media content you were describing earlier, who maybe they're making a lot, but they're spending up to the maximum, like that's the real tragedy. Yeah. I really respect what you were talking about in in um, your video about my, my selfish choice to pay myself less. Or it was, a, it was an article, excuse me, that you had um, on LinkedIn. Uh, when you talk about how you wanted a four-day work week and six weeks PTO for everyone in your office, I want to know how you came to that strategy. But also, like, everybody wants a four-day work week. It's like to the freedom part of it. I you wanted to you wanted money to give you something that wasn't just stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and it's being on that hamster wheel of capitalism again. How did you come come to that? How did you work toward it? So I actually didn't lead that project. My colleague uh, at the time, uh, she since a couple years later left us to work for a job that I know makes more sense for her, but I we miss her every day. Uh, no, and her replacement is wonderful too. They're all they're all great ladies. But um, she uh, she actually spearheaded the project. Our she was our financial and operations manager, and she had been she's very much on like the cutting edge of labor practices and what people are doing and trying experiments. Um, so she took a survey of our staff, which is small, but it's still worth surveying. And she was like, you know, we'd always done summer Fridays. There's nothing unique about summer. We could try it. And why not just do no Friday instead of stopping at noon? We'll just try it for six months. We'll do a little experiment. We'll look at the data. And if we like it, we'll keep going. And so she led that project. She actually wrote a few articles about it for our LinkedIn because um, she did, you know, follow-ups, I think, at the 6, 12, and 18-month point, um, just kind of analyzing all of the different aspects of the business. And it became very clear. I mean, we have the data that most people who work office jobs, they don't even work close to 40 hours a week, yep. even if they're technically <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. supposed to be there. there. Done that. <laughs> they're on TikTok. Caption your videos, kids. Two hours a day, I was on Facebook <laughs> when I had an office job. Okay, two hours of the eight, I promise you. <laughs> so to that point, we were like, let's give that that time back. And I think especially, you know, I don't have children, but several of our team do. and you know, it's not, I think we often forget just how much time reverberates throughout people's lives. I mean, in terms of childcare costs, in terms of other projects you can take on, in terms of, you know, just the ability to have a day, the three-day weekend to me is perfect. You have one day for relaxation, one day for socialization, and one day for all of your domestic stuff. You know, mm. like you can clean the house and do the laundry and go to appointments. And I think you know, what's really interesting is that so transparently, we don't pay as much, I mean, as some other companies do, especially for some of our more tenured employees, you know, and we have this conversation all the time, like, everyone's paid well, I think the, no one's paid any less than like $75,000, $80,000 a year full time, but at the 32 hours a week, but especially for more senior employees, you know, they might be making 110, 115, but they could go to another company and make 130, 140. And uh, we have that conversation very transparently all the time because again, most of our employees have been here for a very, very long time. And we can only afford to go up so much each year, even with uh, people but on But it's the trade-off, right? It's like you can make more money, but then if you can't enjoy that money, then is it, to your point, is it enough, 100%. right? Like it's and, yeah. and also in the case of some of the mothers on the team, for example, they've said, you know, I do the math and not having and having that extra day of daycare or of nanny or childcare, or whatever, like that would actually cancel out like up to X many hours of right. work that I would be working anyway. So, you know, it is just really interesting to see how much of a compensation perk that that actually plays as well for people. 
It's so human yeah. focused too. And I just don't think we talk about that in our systems enough, um, which I no. really respect <laughs> and appreciate. Um, okay. So before we move on to the next topic, Chelsea, uh, we love a game here on Let Me Fix It. So as our first and only CEO that we've ever had on the pod, we want to play a game called Ask a CEO, where we ask you a variety of questions and get the unique and nuanced perspective of a real CEO. So the first question, if you had to self-identify with a totally unnecessary portmanteau, would you choose CEO or CEO? <laughs> and why? You have, and to, why yeah. you have to specify why. CEO for sure. Okay, uh, girl. Because we almost literally never work with men. Um, we have, our, almost literally, like all our staff's women. I think our lawyer is a man, but I mean, he's a, a 1099, whatever, like a, we're a client. So that's a different story. But suffice to say, we almost never interact with men. And when we do, um, you can always tell that they're so not used to being in a space that's entirely women. So I think having to make them uh, refer to me as a hoe would just be a <laughs> wonderful level of discomfort and I would get a lot of joy out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that is a perfect answer. <laughs> okay, so next question. There is a theory called height premium that suggests that people that are taller are more likely to be respected and seen as authority figures. As weird as that sounds, the Journal of Applied Psychology backs this theory up, stating that height is often linked with positive attributes like leadership and intelligence. So my question is, Chelsea, how tall are you? And when it comes to being the boss, does size really matter? I claim 5'7". Uh, I think. <laughs> what, is, what does claim 5'7 mean? I'm like 5'6". Five, five, and and I'm, I'm like 5'6 and two-thirds. Um, but I... There's about to be a TikTok video. I've seen Chelsea in these streets. And she's actually 5'5 five, five and a half. <laughs> I, uh, and also I just feel tall. Like I love a tall woman. I really identify with a tall woman. Um, and actually the head of our sales team, she is like almost six feet. She's a tall lady. We have some tall ladies on our team. Um, but no, I think it's, it's funny. I think for me, I know this was a joke question, but I'm going to take, <laughs> I'm going to just seriously say that I feel like because in society and like hetero dating, particularly, we put so much emphasis on women being like teeny petite Dainty. little creatures mm -hmm. i and i feel like so many tall women um hate that about themselves and mm -hmm. they're like they're like crunch themselves up they'll will they'll wear ballet flats to formal events and shit like i always get i'm convinced that's why i have bad posture yeah because when i was younger i hated being tall i was always trying to make myself smaller wow so i love a tall girl and we have a lot of tall queens on our team i, I, I um, love my short queens too but there was this, there was some uh, a friend I was talking to who was like, uh, whenever I see like a short girl with a tall man, was this you, Fran? A short no. girl with a tall man, I'm like, you really, girl? You had to take that one for, you had to take that. One. Why can't the tall girls have the tall men? I mean, I've had times where you know I'm not really I'm I'm currently uh, in remission from dating men, um, <laughs> but when I was still talking to them, I had a few times that I went on dates with guys where they seemed indignant over the fact that I was tall. They yes. were like, I just, I thought, they, they thought I was lying on my dating wow. profile. They're like, oh, you really are 5'10". And I was like, yes. How tall are you? Because they're realizing, oh shit, like I kind of fudge. Yes. They fudge their height and then they see me and they're like, oh, wait a second. Like, I actually this stole this anecdote from one of my colleagues for my novel because uh, my protagonist is a tall queen. Um, 
she had told us that she had gone on this date, I guess a Tinder date or something. And the guy like straight up confronted her and was like insisting that she was not as tall as she said she was, that she wasn't actually like 5'11 or whatever, because obviously that would mean that he was lying about his height. But she was like, it was like literally the first interaction we had was him like getting mad at me about like and insisting I was lying. Oh, yeah. And when guys do things like that, I'm like, how do you think this is going to go? Do you think she's going to go, you're right. And now like, let's sit down to dinner and like, and also we going to fuck. Like, what do you, what do they think (laughs) is going to happen? Men are very small, pun intended. Um, Our last question for Ask a CEO, Chelsea, is we wanted your perspective on this totally cringeworthy video by Bob Briscoe, who's the CEO of Internet Brands, which is a terrible name. Um, But it's better known as the parent company WebMD, a.k.a. Catnip for hypochondriacs, um, or as I like to call it, Dr. Google. Because seriously, anytime you put a symptom in WebMD, it just will 100% tell you that you're dying. Um, But I still do it, don't I? (laughs) Every time. Oh, yeah. We all do it. Um, So at the top of 2024, internet brands released an internal video announcing that despite the ongoing pandemic, the employees would be required to return to the office this year. So we're going to take a look at this video. It's only two minutes long. And then Chelsea, we want your professional CEO (laughs) take on how you would respond to the inevitable backlash from this very weird video. Let's take a look. Many of you have come back to the office and we've noticed it's made a big difference. Unfortunately, too big of a group hasn't returned. We're getting more serious about getting everyone back into the office for the simple reason that we're better when we're together. We move faster, we get better results, and the executives are going to tell you more about that right now. We need you ready and present, and we need it now. Working together face-to-face helps us create ideas faster and better, so we have new products and new offerings for our customers. Okay, wait, I have to pause. These people are in front of a green screen. So I want to know, were y'all really in the office when you were saying we had to come back to the office? Or were they in prison? (laughs) We're able to collaborate and help each other to be better leaders. We all know when we spend more time together, we end up creating better solutions for our clients. Okay, I, I can't I can't watch any more of this entirely cringeworthy video. So Chelsea, uh, they did put out a response the video after it was leaked online the backlash was so swift that they took the video off the internet and then they re-released it with a clip addressing the controversy and it says as to comments and criticisms on the tone and style yeah corporate videos are corporate videos um so i don't know do you think that there's a way to respond to this backlash because i know y'all would never do something like this because you have a a four-day work week but no Insane. So, <laughs> in full transparency, so we do have a 40 work week. We do have an office. In general, we will do two days a week in office, although right now it's optional. Um, you know, we've typically kind of gotten to a place where, like, especially during the winter spikes, like, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. half the team is sick. We got people giving birth, like, all kinds of shit is happening. So, um, very flexible. Most people still will go in one or two days a week. I usually have to to film. Um, And we, I mean, I personally, I don't like 100% remote work. It kind of depresses me a little bit. Like I like to have one or two days a week where I get out of the house and go somewhere. So I do understand it on that level. I think that being said, this is good because I just, I don't want anyone to come for me like, yes, we do have an office, but I, this kind of video and is there a good response to it? No, in the sense that I think 
one thing that we have to lean even further into as an internet community. This is why the like really, really petty, low-hanging fruit cancel culture shit, quote unquote, of like, we can't all be dogpiling a 19-year-old for saying something really stupid on Twitter. Mm. We need to use that righteous indignation and that like brute force internet rage. Let's go after WebMD. Let's go after Pfizer. Yes. Let's go <laughs> yes. after Amazon and stuff that's like making people do this. Or, I mean, this is obviously a fairly benign example compared to the shit that corporations get away with every day. And I really do wish, like, I think, if anything, yell at them more. Um, yeah. Shame their <laughs> CEO more, honestly. Right. Um, but I do think, like, part of me always thinks when I see stuff like that, I'm like, yes, this is this is really what, this is the best pot possible iteration of social media as as social tool is like yelling and yeah. screaming at corporations until they acquiesce. It just was such a, the vibe was also so strange because the people in the video don't seem like they want to go back to work. They're like, we should be in the office. Well, and the, and, and the theory is like, I work for you and you're telling me I now have to do this video. So, but it feels like, you know, under duress, like I have, I yeah. guess I have to make this video because you're my boss about people coming back in. And who are you coming back in for? Who are we working faster for? You, not me. I, do I get anything extra? Right. And, and I feel like with the work from home, we, the quality of life was expanded and we realized yeah. oh, we can still do that and also have balance in life. So why would I give that up? You know? Well, also the irony of the parent company of WebMD not acknowledging that the pandemic is not over. That part. Like, people are still getting COVID, <laughs> you know? And, and like, yes, I mean, listen, working from home is a luxury, but in reality, it's also a safety issue and, and an accessibility yes. issue, right? There are people who have been permanently disabled by COVID and being able to work from home is the only way they can do it safely and continue to be productive. And so it's just so incredibly tone deaf. Um, and, and then they try to make it like jovial with like the music. Be it's happy just, about it? Just, it's very, very weird. Um, I, I love your idea or your solution that we should use social media to like give these people shit more often. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. We're always out here just tearing each other to bits about, you know, it's, there's truly, there's nothing like the internet, like the way that like someone will go after a person who agrees with them about 99.9% .9 of the, of things and also and also holds no power or leverage. Yes. Like yeah. it, you will and there is something about it where like I understand it's like more satisfying, it's like more human level. It feels like you can actually get a get a reaction or see some sort of uh, progress or outcome. Screaming at Amazon feels a little futile, but it truly is. That's that and politicians. That's where we need to be directing it. Hell mm -hmm. yeah, they should be scared. Okay. They should be worried. Can I go to dinner? <laughs> Is someone gonna roll up on me and yell at me in this restaurant? As we should. Y'all work for us. Okay. Um, one of the other things we are really excited to talk about, Chelsea, is you're quite the accomplished author. Uh, published, published, published. In 2013, you published I'm Only Here for the Wi-Fi, A Complete Guide to Reluctant Adulthood. Another great title, girl. Get it? Um, and you followed that up with 2018's The Financial Diet, A Total Beginner's Guide to Getting Good with Money. But in 2023, you switched things up for your third book, A Perfect Vintage, which is self-published. Tell us why you decided to self-publish. 
Uh, because for a, a trade paperback romance novel, you make a lot more money. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. oh, uh-huh. okay. She said the financial also, diet. Who? She did, of course, you did your homework. Yes. You yes. know that makes sense. But also because you know, I had initially shopped it out a little bit to a very, very limited pool of editors, and the um, genre fiction is a strange place in the sense that um, it's marketed very differently and produced very differently than like contemporary fiction. The books that will often sit at the front of bookstores. It's starting to change a little bit, but. A lot of the creative changes and, you know, directions that they wanted to put on my novel, like even certain genre tropes, like how the book is supposed to go narratively, certain things that it needs to really adhere to. I mean, Mm. even something like the cover, you know, a lot of romance covers, unfortunately, are just not really to my taste. And like I Mm. wanted, I commissioned an original oil painting for that cover from an artist that I love. Like, I really wanted it to have a certain feel and a certain positioning. Um, And I knew well enough. I did a lot of research and uh, whatnot. Um, and I, I knew that I could, I mean, I could get into bookstores. I have foreign editions of the book. Like it's been, it's been able to sell very seamlessly. And it was, it was a substantial investment. I, I invested almost $50,000 in it up front. Um, yeah, most of girl. it went to, you know, I, I had a team of collaborators who then I profit share with, but then I also have, you know, a lot of investment in uh, materials, production, all that kind of stuff. But I knew that on the back end, like just for a point of reference, the trade paperback royalties after you earn out your advance, which is usually very low, is 7.5% per copy sold. For me, depending on the type of medium I'm selling it, I earn between 30 and 70% per copy sold. Wow. Let me do the math. The math is mathing with the self-publishing. was mathing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm I'm curious, did you write had when you shopped the book because I, I know the process with um, nonfiction oftentimes for me like I didn't write the whole book I just wrote a proposal and had two chapters written had you written the whole book when you started going out to publishers you have to for fiction generally okay unless you're like yeah you know a mega star you generally have to write the whole book and I ended up working with an editor at a trad publisher who loved it um, uh, disagreed with her boss on some of the creative choices but um we ended up working together on a freelance basis and she's uh I, I was able to thank my line editor by name but she's listed as jane doe because she could maybe get fired if it oh wow um, oh wow so you know the financial diet has a new book releasing april 23rd 2024 beyond getting by the financial diet's guide to abundant and intentional living and the book is written by uh the creative director of your company holly trantham i hope i'm saying yes. her name correctly her name. Um, but you wrote the foreword um how did this book come together and now that you have three books under your belt what, if anything, did you decide to do differently this time around? And what were you able to kind of like help Holly with as she was working on this book? Yeah. Um, so I did do the forward in one chapter. It was also designed by my co-founder who designed our first book. So that was really nice to have that continuity. Um, she uh, is actually going to be on maternity leave when the book comes out, but hopefully she'll still be able to come to some of the parties. Um, sure. But Yeah, I mean, I, so I love the book process. I'm doing two more, I'm working on two more books right now, one traditionally published, one self-published. And I really enjoy the process. And I think now that I've sort of like, now that I do both and I've, you know, I can see through the matrix in terms of like how to optimize each book for, you know, the financial creative balance. Um, Like the one I'm traditionally publishing is like a very highly designed book, photography, illustration, would be very difficult to produce, would be very difficult to distribute, source, et cetera. Um, 
now that I'm able to kind of do that and I feel like I have a lot more leverage because I know how to do it myself, I can really enjoy the process a lot more for my colleague. You know, I really wanted her to write this because A, she's a fantastic writer and knows the business inside and out. But also I like, you know, we have, like you mentioned our podcast, Too, Too Good to Be True. I don't host that. Like a lot of the stuff that we do is not me, it's other people. And I I like that because there's only so many ways you can hear my perspective. I like to hear other people's. And there's also a lot of different voices featured in that book. Um, so for her, I think, you know, my biggest, the way that I kind of worked, because obviously her writing is excellent, her editor's excellent. So for the writing itself, that was straightforward. But for me, a lot of the advice that I would give her, the ways that I would work with her is like, you got to hold these publishers to account because, mm. you know, it's an industry where most of the employees are under overworked, underpaid. If you don't, if the squeaky wheel gets the grease, like you have to advocate for your book, you have to advocate for your marketing, you have to stay on them about the cover. I mean, the cover we have now, I love it. It's gorgeous. It was an original commissioned illustrations. You would, your eyes would sizzle looking at the, at the first iterations of the cover. I... Can I can attest to that because guess who edited the who did the editing work on her book cover? Me right here. Because they will tell you, to your point, they'll tell you, oh no, 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 it's gonna cost way too much money to do it. And I'm like, that's not true. One, I know it can be done. I can edit it myself, but also they will try to steer you and say, it has to be this way. And when the reality is they are paying for it, but like it is your book and you yes. want to make sure that you feel good about what's on the shelf um, versus, you know, in, in recent years, there's been this this trend of books with like blobs of color. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like the, the book blobs. Oh, they all I do look know the same. Yeah. It just looks like a bunch of paint with like text on top yeah. of it. It was like one book did it. And now every book's doing it. And I often wonder myself, how many of those people were forced into doing that book cover versus this is the cover I really, really want. I just need to say on that note. So my friend um, Ashley had a book that was very successful several years ago that had a lot of abstract colors with the title over it. And then a lot of books came out that looked just like her book and they clearly aped her title or her cover. Wait, wait, is this, a are you talking about Ashley's book? Uh, Somebody's about Daughter. My Father? Somebody's, Somebody's Daughter. daughter. Yes. Ashley C. Ford. Okay. So, okay. Yes, 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 now, yes. Shout out to her. Shout out to Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Now... Every time someone does a roundup of books that look like that, her book is in it. And I always feel such a like frustration of like, no, but her book was the book like that. And then other books came out looking at it. Yeah. I mean, I think hers is abstract color, but it does have some kind of like, it's like flowers. Uh, illustration. Yeah. It's, it, there's illustrations in there, but you're, you're correct. It is one of those things where just one person's did well. And then, and, and it's that thing of like, Ashley is a fantastic writer. The cover of the book is beautiful. The cover of the book is not the sole reason the book was successful. Right. Mm -hmm. The book is also a good book. But unfortunately, people start kind of like doing the thing of like, well, that was successful. So now if we want our books to be successful, they also have to look like that. And it's, it's just definitely reducing the process down to like 100%. plug and play. All right. Well, we are super excited about your new book. And class, you can pre-order it at beyondgettingbybook.com. We've got a few more things to chat with Chelsea about. But first, let's take a quick break. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we are back. Chelsea, your TikTok has been blowing up lately, and you've really planted your flag as someone who is not afraid to share a hot take or let the internet know one thing about me. So we thought that it would be fun to share some personal things that we would like to fix round robin style. Because one thing about Chelsea, whether it is the ridiculousness of wedding culture or the joys of being child-free, she is going to let the girlies know what she thinks. So since you are a guest, uh, would you like to go first and share something that you think needs fixing out in the world? Well, to your point about wedding culture, so uh, I really hit the hornet's nest with that one, um, but I stand by everything I said. I was right, and I should say it. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I pointed out, so like I had a... 27 person wedding it was by nature destination because my partner and i are from two different countries so by by nature half those people had to travel we paid for the accommodations we limited it 20 to 27 we helped with certain plane tickets we were like because we were not one thing we did not want to do was make our wedding a financial burden on anyone else Mm. Mm. now i understand that even still it was probably burdensome for some it's probably still a big expense for others whatever whatever but It was very important through that process. We did no gifts. We had no registry, like none of that stuff. We fed everyone. We kept everyone for a week. We put them up for a week in a villa. So point being, that is a very high standard, although it wasn't that expensive compared to a lot of weddings because we did everything like very DIY. But I do think that so much of wedding culture is just completely negligent about offloading expenses to your guests and to especially your bridal party. Those numbers have skyrocketed over the past 20 years. So many things that are must-dos now didn't exist 20 years ago, even. A lot of this, I think, is social media. But one thing I pointed out in particular, so I didn't have any bridal party because 27 people, what are you going to do? It's a little silly. Everyone's special. But Mm. I was a bridesmaid recently. I've been a bridesmaid before, but I was a bridesmaid recently. And in this instance, the bride was like, I want you to wear, it was three of us, she was like, a something in a color green, any shade of green is fine. Any kind of outfit is fine. We all actually all ended up wearing pants, but she was like, whatever you want. And if you don't have something that you like, I will give you a stipend to buy something. And I said on my TikTok, I was like, to me, that should be the standard of if you want someone (laughs) to wear a specific outfit, you should have to buy it for them. I really believe that. Yes. Especially if I love green personally, but I know green is not everybody's color. So you're asking someone to buy something that they might not ever wear again. And bridesmaid dresses are expensive. They are not something that you're going to, and they're not something you're going to wear all the time unless you're going to like a lot of formal events. I agree. You should absolutely pay or to your point, offer a stipend to cover a portion of the, of the cost. Well, and that's already to, to say green, any shade, any shape, any, anything like that is already leagues beyond what most bridesmaids get, which is like, here's this ugly dress that you would have never chosen for yourself in a (laughs) cult. I will never forget. Recently, a friend was at a wedding and she sent me a picture of the bridesmaids and they were all wearing solid, like floor length, um, 
like coral colored column dresses. And she was like, this literally looks like five pieces of salmon nigiri standing next to this bride. I know that none of these women are ever wearing this dress again. And she looked it up and the dress was like $400. Like these are expensive dresses. Well, and here's the thing. If you're in more than one wedding, that's, I mean, that's like over your your adult lifetime. That's thousands of dollars, right? And now be single. Don't be single and have to go all those damn weddings. (laughs) Here's a fix for this. I, uh, one of my first jobs out of college, I worked with a girl and she was in a, a little group of friends and they were all getting married within the same like year of each other. And they all picked the same bridesmaids dress Smart. so that they could use it multiple times. Smart. And it, great. Was a, it was a, it was a black dress. It was very simple, but it was like very elegant. And it was the type of thing that you could wear multiple yeah. times as a guest, or if you were going to a black tie event. And I was like, I I didn't have I mean look I got divorced so shout out to me for not having an expensive wedding I somehow I could see the future <laughs> but I didn't have a bridal party and to think that you were like okay I'm going to spend it on this one thing cuz I know girls who've been in three and four yes. weddings in one year absolutely Oh my gosh. Well, I think that that is a great fix. I'm sorry that people were eating you up on TikTok, but but once again, run them numbers up because uh, make sure you got that one minute video and you got the, you're in the creator fund so that you can get your coins off people being upset because one thing about me, they all stay mad and I will stay paid. And Chris is going to make content out of them being mad. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Uh, fun fact, I can't qualify for the creator fund because I, I guess I must have started my TikTok while I was in Spain and now it registers me as being in Spain and you can't ever change that again, according to what I've read. What? Yeah. Yeah. I oh, know. My. That's crazy. That is... Oh my God, that that's really messed up. I already have a topic picked out, but I, that would be my topic if I could go back because that's really annoying. I know. So TikTok's profiting off of your viral TikToks and you're not. So that's a bummer. Um, Dawn, do you have a fix for the expensive uh, bridal or bridal party outfits? Uh, so I've only been in uh, two weddings and to your point, Chelsea, both, I know three weddings and both two of my friends gave the tuxes they were like here are what the tuxes are go pick it up and pay for it um i th- my fix is like elope and have a party right mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. if it's really about people celebrating I, I know people do this somebody I just worked with just told me that they did this everyone wants us to celebrate we're going to get you gifts anyway tell us it's a part a destination party or whatever um but don't ask people to do all of that i think it's just too much so i'd say elope and just have a party we're just we all are there for the cake and for dancing anyway like honestly and for the alcohol so let's just like jump to that part okay so my my thing that i'm annoyed about is talkative uber drivers i have gotten into so many ubers where i'm leaving a meeting and they're like what was the meeting about and i'm like i don't want to talk to you about what the meeting was about or what do you do for a living and then i'm like actually i'm really stressed out about my career right now i don't want to talk about this i did learn that there is quiet mode on the uber app but it only is for if you get an uber black meaning the most expensive car Mm. and i think that this is an opportunity for a business to corner this section of the market they could call the company quiet car and it's just a car service that is silent. And you could even have, you know, certain uh, filters. For example, I don't want to talk about politics. I'm open to talking, mm. but I don't want to talk about, about about that. I'm open to talking about music. 
I'm not open to talking about work. I don't want to talk about family. I had an Uber driver the whole time talk to me about why I should hurry up and have kids. And I was like, I just want to get to the airport. Like, (laughs) I don't want to talk to you about this. And I think that that should be an option that's, if not a whole brand, it should be available to all Uber passengers. What if you what if you're coming back from like I don't know, you just lost your job or you had a death in the family? I don't want to talk to you and I shouldn't have to explain why I don't want to talk. It should just be respected of I'm really not in the mood right now. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. But I always feel like awkward saying that in a car. And so having the option to like put it on the app beforehand I think would be really beneficial. Chelsea, do you find that you are also spoken to a lot in Ubers because I'm re- I'm wondering if it's a female thing because they don't speak to me as much. <laughs> they don't. They don't. <laughs> honestly, I am such a talkative person, though. I uh, <laughs> also she's like I'm talking to them. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. You're the one who's chatting them. I, You're making it worse. For I the am rest making of us. it worse, especially <laughs> so my friends make fun of me for this. So I have been really aggressively learning Spanish for the past couple of years. And a lot of, especially when I'm, I'm in Miami, a lot of drivers of car services are Spanish speaking native and many of them mm. don't speak English. And I would always like get into my friend when I was there with some friends, they made fun of me. Cause when I would get into the car, like I would go really far out of my way to like really well pronounce their name and like say hello with like a quasi accent <laughs> so that they would be like, Oh, you speak Spanish. And I'm like, funny you should ask. Yes, I do. <laughs> Let's have 30 minutes of immersion conversation while they're just sitting there on oh, their phone. Oh, my God. Chelsea, yo hablo espanol. Y, y. I was about to say, Delon, Delon is simpatico with you on that one. Because <laughs> I know for a fact he's in the Uber it's, chatting we up just in were Spanish. Spain last year. And I had the longest. Uh, when we came back from Cancun, I talked to the guy who was driving me to the airport for 30 minutes. The best. Because I was mm-hmm. like. I can practice my Spanish, right? That's why I'm here to practice the Spanish. Well, also to celebrate Spanish. <sighs> okay, but, but when but when I'm not okay, I I'm on day five of Duolingo. I lost. I had a streak for two <laughs> seconds. Delon, you get that I don't freeze, know you, girl. You got to get that freeze. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I am not a Spanish speaker. I only speak English. But I've just had many times where, like, I'm just not in the mood, and and it and again, I've had instances with drivers that have gotten an attitude when I said, I'm sorry, like I have a headache. or And then I'm like, oh my God, this is a safety issue. Mm-hmm. Now I'm in a car with this motherfucker and mm-hmm. you know where I live. And now I feel like I'm in danger. Totally. You know what I mean? Like, so I wish I could just say quiet car only. I think that's the best fix for that. I mean, my, my solution is always just to honestly pretend like I didn't hear them and just keep scrolling in my phone and or I have my Bose headphones on and I just didn't hear you right so that would be my like Mm -hmm. immediate personal fix for that um but I think the quiet mode is brilliant and they need to expand it all right Um, Dawn take us home yeah so for me my the thing that I'm rubbing up against is tipping culture so Mm. if you go to a sweet green if you go to a Starbucks if you go to even a local you know a local coffee shop it's all about and it's in the little kiosk where you like you know I tap my little watch and it's like how much do you want to tip um and it's not that I'm above tipping but if you are at a restaurant and there's actual a serve I see you doing something I see you you know an actual service or labor around it yeah but i don't always want to tip the barista because all you did was put the coffee in the cup and put some cream in there but i feel a lot of pressure at the till at the service station in the transaction to actually pay so i often do tip 
but I'm trying to convince myself that like I don't have to and and push back on that. So that's the thing I'm rubbing up against. And I actually am trying to find a way to engage the service person so that I feel better about tipping. I'm like, at least talk so that to they, me. So that they earn it. Yeah. I, I, listen, my fix is y'all need to start paying people more because if if people are relying on tips to get by, that is the fault of the employer. 100%. They should be making sure that people are making a living wage so that a tip is like a nice little bonus. Not like, oh my God, I'm so upset that I didn't get a tip because I'm not making that much per hour at wherever it is that they're working. Right. That's my fix. <laughs> Do you have a fix for that, Chelsea? Okay, I generally agree. Yes, I also think they're like it's gotten so out of control that even like very well paid people are getting into like tipping culture like not professional services maybe like you're not you know you're like cpa isn't turning around a little kiosk to be like you want a tip but (laughs) but that being said like i think there's very much like the other problem too is that you don't always know necessarily where it's going like for example like if we we're having some uh work done in our home you always must tip in cash to the actual workers, because if you give it to the company on your card, you have no idea if it's actually getting distributed to those people. So always tip directly to the people and in cash so you can ensure that it goes to the right people is definitely a big recommendation. But I personally think for like, we got to outlaw it for anything that doesn't require like an actual service. Like it can't just be like, you're at a shoe store and they ring you up and it's like, do you want a tip? Like we got to at least eliminate that because if nothing yeah. else, it will, because I do still see some argument. Like I was a barista for a very long time. I loved my tips and this was pre all of that culture. So I do still love it, mm-hmm. but I think we're getting so far out uh, ahead of our skis that we at least got to eliminate it from certain industries because it's getting ridiculous. I do appreciate that. We don't know where it's going. Yes. either. That's a really yeah. good point i think that is a a very very good point because we do definitely see people that say they have to i've never worked in a restaurant before but i've heard from people that sometimes your tip ends up going into like one big pot and then gets distributed to everybody so it's like well i'm giving better service to my tables than that person but like we're all benefiting from my tips like how is that okay cool tips are a controversial thing i did work in restaurants and i I see both sides, I'll say. See, and again, I've never done it before, but like I can I can assume that I would be the person that would be like, well, my tables love me. So that's my tip. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? well, your tables would love you, but Fran would like be late with all the food still. No. <laughs> No, you know, I would be, I, I'm very, I, I don't trust myself that I would not drop things. Uh, I feel like that's where I, I would I feel like you would be up. like the stand-up routine and then they'd be like, but where's my sandwich? Where's my food? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, who's, fr- anybody from Florida? Like I'm doing a Hilarious. tight five at the table. Um, well, Chelsea, this has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Before we end, please let everybody know where they can find you on the interwebs and if there's anything else that you would like to plug in addition to the upcoming financial diet book. no that'll be it um the financial diet is just everywhere at the financial diet and i'm uh just like you i have detoxed from twitter last year so i'm just on instagram and tiktok at fagan chelsea so hope to see you there 
Amazing. So now class, we would love to hear from you. How do you feel about your finances? Do you feel like you're well-equipped to handle them? Are you out here using afterpay on things that you should not be using afterpay for? You can be honest with us. We will not judge you. Or maybe you would like to suggest a TV show, a celeb, or a brand that you think we should fix in a future episode. Hit us up on Instagram at fixitpod or email us. Let me fix it pod at gmail.com. And do not forget, we now have a YouTube channel. Visit YouTube youtube.com slash at fix it pod to watch this week's episode and see our lovely faces and if you enjoyed this episode as always please give us a rating on itunes spotify amazon music or your favorite podcast app i'm delon i'm francesca and this was let me fix it with chelsea fagan even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.